0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. It was Christmas Day some 30 years ago, and my mom was hosting at her home. I was back from college. Uh, My mother's a wonderful Christmas host. It was a beautiful Christmas morning. We had the old school, you know, primary colors, large Christmas bulbs on the Christmas tree. We were gathered around. And we had a wonderful custom in our home, maybe you have a similar one, that there would be smaller gifts and stocking gifts, but there would kind of be the one big gift. And as a kid, I was kind of conditioned to kind of wait for that one big gift. And it looked like that Christmas morning, I would certainly not be disappointed. There was a large gift wrapped right there. So it came my turn to open the large gift, and I was unwrapping, and I was right there on that, you know, that precipice? of Christmas present moment, where you haven't quite seen it yet. You're right there on the precipice. How will you respond? How will you like it? And I opened it up, and my heart sunk, much to my shame. My long-suffering mother's actually here. You want to say hi to my mom? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Marcia's here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And my, my heart sunk, and I went, luggage? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know what I was thinking. It's not like I was 10 and would open up the baseball mitts. It's not like I was 12 and I would open a gift like that. It's not like I was going to get toys anymore, but somehow I was still stuck in my arrested development, and I wanted a big wow. And I opened that luggage, and I went, internally, because I was Midwestern, oh, thanks, Mom. But internally, I was, eh, not quite. Not quite. It's not quite enough. It's not quite what I really wanted. It's just not quite there. And I was just kind of, rest of the day, peevish. Not childlike, like like the Bible teaches, childish. I would love to say, That was the last time I was ever childish and peevish about something given to me. I think I've done better honoring my mom, which was important. But since then, I've had several moments. I've been exactly the same with God the Father. This? This is what you're providing for me after all the waiting, all the praying? This? Not quite, Father. Not quite enough, not quite right, not quite what I wanted, not quite what I would have given myself. You didn't get it quite right, Father. And that same childishness, that same petulance comes flooding in to my heart again. There is a very serious temptation the Apostle Paul is going to teach us about this morning. I would call it the temptation of the not-quite where something's being provided for us by God. He's actually giving us the very things that we need, but our response, "Mm, really? That? There is a peril in rejecting God's provision, but it never starts that way. We never just say, I reject your provision, Father. Let me formally make that complaint. Instead, it happens slowly. It happens in the moment. It happens when we realize that this is what God is providing after we've waited. It starts much more with a, which becomes eventually, if we don't arrest it and repent of it, a to a no to what Paul says can take us from that point where we didn't get the ideal to the point of actually gaining an idol in our lives. Well, let's follow the trajectory. I don't expect you to get that yet. Would you turn with me uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? If you have one of our church Bibles, and they're all available on, on seats, it's page 957 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to see that there is the temptation of the not quite. It's a temptation that besieged our fathers and mothers in Israel. It's a temptation that besieged our fathers and mothers in Corinth. And it's a temptation that besieges us now is the temptation of the not quite, verses one to eleven. And then we'll see Paul providing an escape from this temptation, a way out of what becomes evil desire and even idolatry, verses 12 to 14. Look at verse 1. For I do not want you to be aware, unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Okay. We're going to get into this. Let me just say, first of all, if this was read or you were reading in your Bible and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. Clouds and sea and rocks and what? Okay, we're going to explain it, I promise, and we're going to work through it. But first, I want to start right here with our fathers. It's a very important phrase given to us by Paul. A couple things are happening here. First of all, he's going to teach us about Israel. But you can get into a habit that whenever you hear about Israel, read about Israel in the Old Testament, Hebrew Scriptures, or in the New Testament, you think, oh, there they go again. Doesn't the Bible say they're stiff-necked? And create this kind of us-them with Israel. Paul is saying, let's be really clear, and this is to a Gentile group. Non-Jews are being receiving this letter. He's saying, these are our fathers. What Jesus has done is he has brought together Jew and Gentile, so much so, he describes it as being grafted in, and uses a, a, a planting image, we've been grafted in so much so that those fathers are our fathers, which means you have all the heritage given to Israel, you have all the gifts given to Israel, and you have all the challenge that Israel has displayed. What he wanted to prepare you for is that we begin to deal with the temptation of the not quite, and way that can lead to an ideal that becomes an idol, we will quickly go us, them, and we go, that's their problem, not mine. That's Israel's problem, not mine. That's Koran's problem, not mine. He knows the tendency of our hearts, When so he's saying, let's be really clear. We have a heritage in Israel, and we have an understanding in Israel. He says in verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did because we're as vulnerable to desiring evil. We're as vulnerable to the not-quite temptation. Not us, them. Us. That doesn't mean that there isn't a unity with distinction in Jew and Gentile relationship. There is a unity with distinction. But the unity leads. This is part of our heritage. We're as vulnerable as Israel is vulnerable. Also just as a side note, but this is really important, this also tells you how to read your Bible. What this tells you in verses 6 and 11 as we're understanding this reality of Israel is that the Bible is here to teach us how to live our lives today. It is possible. And some of you have an interest in Bible scholarship. Some of you, and I love this about this congregation, you're just Bible geeks. And by the way, this is, this is a geek out passage. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff going on and Israelite sacraments. It's amazing. We can almost get caught up in that and not get the main point, which has to do with the temptation of the not quite. But it's really important amidst Bible scholarship that you don't lose the reality that the Bible is here to teach us how to live our lives today. That is not facile. That is not simple. That is the way the Bible is written. Scholarship's critical, but it should draw you closer to understanding how the Bible can teach us how to live today. That's why the Bible's given us, so we can see the objective reality of Jesus, the reality of the kingdom of God, and live it today. Okay, let's go back to Israel. Okay, so turn um, in your Bible to page 58. That's Exodus 16, verse 3, or just turn your Bible to Exodus 16, verse 3, because there's a background here. So Paul even though these are Gentiles, they've very likely learned their scriptures. So they have this background in Exodus 16. He wants to go back to when the people of Israel were rescued by God out of a land of slavery in Egypt. He goes back to this critical moment. They were rescued. And you would think after they were rescued, you would think that after we're rescued, we would just live our lives in the glow of being rescued that it was so bad for four centuries under immense slavery where they lived in terror every day that when God finally rescued Israel they would just spend 40 years just running around saying God is so good. Like us, right? They we're so happy that God saved us from our sins that all we ever do is just give thanksgiving all the time. We're just blown away. We would never miss an opportunity to be with the people of God to give thanksgiving. We would never miss an opportunity to share with people who don't know God thanksgiving. But Israel is not that way and nor are we. Instead, we see, look what Israel's doing. The people of God, verse 3. The people of Israel said to Moses and Aaron, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots. Those meat pots were so good. Some of you Epicureans, I'm going to speak to you now the just right olive oil, the just right rock salt, the just right wheat from wheat meat market, right? So good. I'd rather have a full stomach of delightful food that I can control, that can meet my ideals, than life. They're saying, I'd rather have, I mean, I would love to know what's in that Egyptian meat pot, by the way, I've been thinking about that this week. Like, man, I would love an Egyptian meat pot. It sounds so delicious. I mean, it must have been so good. You'd actually rather be dead. With meat pot and then alive with manna. Huh. You'd rather be bonded to your ideal, whatever that might be, to your Egyptian meat pot. You'd rather have the ideal, and we'll get into that more, than the real, the real rescue, the real Jesus, the real God, the real Savior, the real promised land. So God says there in verse 11 and 12, the Lord says to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat. How good God is. You like the meat pot, I'll give you meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know how much I love you, that I'm the Lord your God. what Paul is saying as he sets this up is that they had the cloud. He's saying they were basically baptized as they went through the Red Sea. He's talking about, one scholar calls them Israelite sacraments, that they had kind of proto-early sacraments that were fulfilled in Jesus, but they were baptized in the Red Sea. They went through the waters. They were saved and rescued, and they even, even had baptism. They had Holy Communion. They were fed by God, water from the rock, Bread literally from heaven. They were given everything that they need, everything that they needed to do it, but they were saying it's not enough. Not quite. Not quite. Look, look at the not quite. Look, 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 at the, look at this in the book of Numbers. Again, if you have a, a, a church Bible, it's page 129. Move over to Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. Look at this. This is fascinating. So this is after God has provided meat and after God has provided manna. the people again speak against God and Moses. Verse 5, chapter 21 Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now, here's the the telling statement. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Eh, not quite. Not what I would give to myself, God. Do you know what you're doing? No, no, really. Haven't you asked that? Do, do you know what you're doing, God? Do you know what I really need? Not quite, also a Corinthian issue, appears. Verse 7. Do not become idolaters, as some of them were. Now, he's talking about Israel. What he's doing is actually applying it to Corinth, because we know from reading the whole book of Corinth that these things were actually happening in Corinth as well. For it is written, verse 7, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's referring to a time when Moses is bringing the word of God to them. Moses is delayed in bringing the word of God to them. Basically, the people of God are saying, where is the word of God? Will the word of God come? Will the word of God enter our lives? It's not coming, and they break out into idolatry of creating a golden calf, and they rise up and play. That is not tennis. That is sexual immorality. That's the understanding of the original Hebrew word. They can't engage God, they feel. God's not coming through for them with his word from Sinai, and so they'll engage their own God. They'll create the ideal because it appears that the real hasn't yet occurred. And he's saying, Corinth, are doing the same thing. The Corinthians had an obsession with the supernatural. You can also, by the way, in, in your first Corinthians say it, it could be supernatural food, supernatural drink. It's spiritual or supernatural. They were obsessed with the supernatural. They were obsessed with, with tongues. And you may not know about tongues. Tongues is a teaching in the Bible that those who walk in the Holy Spirit might at times pray in an ecstatic way. They wouldn't use actual words, but, but syllables, and it's kind of a heart language between God and His people. It's a gift that God gives. It's a secondary gift. But for the Corinthians, it was a major gift. They wanted it all to be about tongues. You were, you were a leader if only you spoke in tongues. You were truly a Christian, a follower of Jesus. If only you spoke in tongues, this is what it had to be. And everything else, not quite good enough. Not quite. Because this was the obsession. This was the ideal. Do you know that even true spiritual realities like tongues can become an idolatry to the people of God as it has for Corinth. And what Paul is saying is, do you see how like Israel you are? You see, you have some ideal of what it has to be. They have your Egyptian meat pot. You have tongues. Neither one of them intrinsically wrong, but both of them becoming idols. And what's happening in light of that? You're grumbling. You're complaining. He's saying you have the Holy Communion. You have baptism. And in verses 6 and 11, he's saying you have the Scriptures. You've been taught everything about God that you need. You have everything you need. Why? Because baptism itself is enough? No. Eucharist itself is enough? No. Where does it all come from? Look at verse 4. The spiritual rock that was Messiah, that was Jesus, because Jesus is enough. Paul is saying you have what you need in Jesus, but you don't even know what you have. Eh. It's not quite right. Look at verse 6. These are examples for us so that we don't desire evil. Okay, that seems to ramp this up very quickly. How is not quite, the temptation for not quite, ramped up to desiring evil? Okay, another question. Why is grumbling or complaining included in a list of extremely serious sins? You see that? Look with me, you guys. Okay, verse 7, do not be idolaters. That's very serious. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. That's very serious. We must not put Christ to the test. That's very serious. And look at the fourth one. Nor grumble, as some of them did. I mean, don't you kind of think that complaining and grumbling is in the category of bad habit? It's like, I mean, like, you know, having sex outside of marriage, or that's bad, really bad, and it, it is wrong in the Scriptures. But, but complaining, I mean, come on. I mean, that's just bad habit. Uh, maybe it's a sin, but it's a junior varsity sin, you know, doesn't suit up that much, doesn't play that much, isn't that involved in my life. Or if it is, it doesn't have that much influence. That's not true for Paul. He knows his scriptures too well. Okay, watch what's happening here. He is very concerned about complaining because complaining is diagnostic he understands that complaining and grumbling tells you something about what's happening in your heart toward God. It tells you how you're thinking about God. Complaining happens because it's fed by an ideal that is seemingly not being met. When we complain, it's because there's an ideal that we wish we had or we think we should have and we don't have it, and we complain in the gap between what we do have and what we think we should have. The ideal feeds the complaining. And that ideal feeding the complaining can become a deeper and deeper and deeper entrenched heart position whereby complaining feeds an ideal and that ideal, if it's fed long enough, morphs into an idol. From complaining to ideal to an idol. An idol be that which takes up the space of God in our lives. An idol be that which takes up the security of God in our lives. And all of a sudden, that ideal that's out there, that perfect Christmas gift... That perfect piece of meat, that perfect husband or perfect wife, those perfect children begin to consume us, and we begin to desire not Jesus, slowly, subtly, over time, but that ideal itself, and it takes over and begins to control our lives. And it confuses us because we think we're controlling our lives by focusing on that, by focusing on that ideal, we somehow I think I can focus on my life, I can control my life, and I can steer my life toward this ideal, and it's an utter and complete deception. And Paul is saying, How do you know you're being deceived? Are you complaining? No, I mean, I, I'm asking that for you to ask yourself right now Are you in a complaining place in your life? And is it being fed especially by an ideal? It's just, it's not that. I don't have that. I'm not there yet. My job isn't that. It doesn't just that you deny what's really going on. No, you, you face what's really going on. You confront the brutal facts of your life. But the question is, is it being fed by complaining, which is being fed by an ideal? Is there an ideal that is gripping you, that's influencing you? It's taking over your desire for God, because it's a desire for anything other than God. For those of us that are called to parenting, this is a constant battle. Every single one of us wants ideal children. And with your kids, you can be, eh. I'm not saying you don't tell the truth about your kids. You don't. Trust others who pray with you to pray for your kids where they are falling short, where they do need to grow. I'm saying, is there an idealization of your kids that leads to an idolization of your children and you're complaining about them? That's different than speaking honestly about the need that's there. I know this seems hackneyed, but I've got to teach into this. This is ruining marriages. Do you ever ask them when you hear about somebody else having an affair? About somebody having an affair, an emotional affair, a sexual affair, and you go, man, that's that's bad. I mean, I feel really bad for them, but that happens and deep inside you go, I would never do that. But where did that start? Well, it probably started with complaining about their spouse. Maybe it's even just internal complaining or subtle complaining to somebody else. Because the spouse isn't ideal enough, not attractive enough, not caring enough, not whatever enough. And those things may even be true to a certain degree, but it becomes an obsession. And there's an ideal that begins to drive everything, and then that ideal becomes an idol. And then introduced into one's life, often by the enemy, is somebody who seemingly fits that perfect ideal, and you can rationalize that shift from that relationship to that relationship because the ideal's got great control. You'll actually feel relieved at first that you finally have the ideal. For single celibates, They could be obsessed with the ideal husband or wife to come. Obsessed. Many good things move into this category. Tongues are a really good thing. Good food is a really good thing. What is it? Maybe the Lord's showing it to you now, you're aware of it now, you can name it. Maybe you need time to go and reflect. How do we get out? How do we get out? We can escape. We can escape from the power of the ideal. We can escape from a ruined marriage or a ruined job situation. We can escape from an elitism that's crept into our hearts. We can escape from all of this. Verses 12 to 14. The escape begins with this. This is a really interesting teaching from Paul. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Okay, let's be clear. Some of you are new Christians. This is a huge issue for you. But some of you are very mature Christians, and this is a huge issue for you. If you think you stand, Paul is saying, you don't understand the power of not quite you don't understand how the ideal becomes the idol. How do you move from not standing to somehow getting to a place of freedom? You move right to your knees. This is where you get, right here. You don't stand, you go to your knees and you go, I am completely vulnerable to this. It's not just mega church pastors in the western suburbs, it's not just Roman Catholic priests, it's not just people that I observe and that I see, this is absolutely within me. I did this several months ago, I did it again. I had nursed and fed an ideal in my mind, I didn't even know I was nursing and feeding it. Year upon year upon year, I had a certain ideal in my mind. And then God provided for me the very thing that I was hoping for and longing for. And I literally looked it in the face and went, eh, no, not quite, Father, not quite good enough, not quite enough, why couldn't you have done it this way? And I was under the power of an idol, this ideal that I built up in my mind, I did it again. So you go to your knees. You don't stand. We can't stand under this. It's too powerful. There's too much power in this from the enemy in our own sinful nature. And we don't go us then. We go us. Yes, the Israelites. Yes, the Corinthians. Yes, those at resurrection this Sunday. Yes, yes, yes. This is how temptation starts. You've taught me this, Father. So what do I do? Look at this verse 13. He provides the way of escape. Now that can seem abstracted. You might have memorized that verse if you were given the gift of memorizing scripture growing up, but that verse can seem very abstract if you're not reading it in light of what Paul's already taught. What are the ways of escape? He's already taught the ways of escape. The ways of escape are owning the baptism God has given you where your salvation was ministered to you, owning the power of Holy Communion, which may not seem spectacular, but ironically rather pedestrian, while it is an incredible miracle, but owning the joy of Jesus meeting you in Holy Communion as he promised he would do. Owning that, embracing that, going, that's, there are a few roads out of this. I I can run down the road of my baptism. I can run down the road of Holy Communion. I can run down the road of scriptures that were given to me to teach me as examples to me. I have the word of God. I have the communion of God. I have the baptism of God. I have it all. Why? Because it all comes from Jesus, the supernatural rock. Look at that in verse 4. It all comes back to Jesus. What are we saying? What is Paul saying to Corinth? He's saying Jesus is enough. If you're on the left side of the equation, see my sermon two weeks ago. If you're on the left side of the equation, and you're waiting for God, you are waiting for specifics, and God loves to answer us in specifics. Do you see how God said, I'll give Israel meat? I know what they want, and I'm a good father. I love to give you things to delight you. But if you're on that left side of the equation, even left side of the equation, you have the living God. You have everything you need in Jesus. And there is peril in our petulance. Childishness. Some of you got to reflect. So reflect on this. Some of you are ready to repent, but just get on your knees. Some of you have an ideal that's so powerful over you that you need to renounce that power. It's kind of an extra extra step. Repenting is critical, but you're, you're actually taking action to say, there's a spiritual power over me with this ideal, and I'm going to renounce it. It's evil. That's Paul's language. I'm going to renounce it. I was praying for us last night, and I was praying for us this morning, and I got a picture in prayer of many of us, and we had our baptismal candles. It's our custom in our church, too. When you're baptized, to give you a, a white candle. And we light it, and it's a symbol of the light of Jesus entering your life, of, of salvation that God gives us. I had this image that many of you had your, your, your baptismal candles, but they weren't lit anymore. And you're looking at it going, it's just not enough, it's just a candle, it's just not enough. Unbelief's taken over, idolatry's taken, it, it can't overcome the darkness of my heart, it can't overcome the darkness of this world. And my, my, my sense is that what you're to do this morning is as you come forth for Holy Communion, just imagine yourself taking that candle and just, just light it here from the Lord's table, his presence, it's just his presence. Imagine yourself putting it in that baptismal font. Just maybe just bless yourself with the water there. Just light that candle again. Jesus, you're faithful. Jesus, you're enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening.